if I had to do a pro con list, um, what would you say? What is what are the good part? What are the pros of where journalism's going? Gen Z, I know I talk about them all the time, but that's like people born basically after 1998, 1999 are so impactfully informed. Like me and other millennials are watching Brid Bridgerton and tuning out our lives like on antidepressants, right? And, but they, <laughs> I mean, look at the, the Parkland kids. They, they've experienced trauma in similar ways to folks in my generation but have mobilized that trauma into a worldwide movement. Greta Thunberg, you know, it, this crosses across um, nations, is that Gen Z folks are so um, energized and mobilized to consume news and change politics that I don't think the die-off will happen. They'll just change the, the mediums in which people are engaging. And I, I think the less we pander to them and the less we condescend to them and the more we empower them to either become content creators or politicians or whatever, right? Um, the more success we'll have with all of these industries staying buoyant. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. This is Zach Grauman, your host of The Future Of, our limited series that airs every Thursday. Today, we are talking about the future of journalism and the one and only amazing Brittany Shepard is joining. She was one of the youngest White House correspondents, I believe, ever. Um, and right now, she's a national politics reporter for Yahoo News. And we talk about how she got into this space, how she frankly, rose so quickly, but also how this industry is evolving and how journalism is changing. And if you are passionate about journalism and our media and where it is going, this is the episode for you. She covered us on the trail and has that perspective from the presidential as well. You don't want to miss this conversation. So Brittany Shepard joining to talk about the future of journalism starting right now. Okay, welcome back to Yang Speaks, the future of. We are joined today by a friend and superstar. I'm honored to be with you because I, I looked up to you and, and really admired what you did as a pro and as a person on the trails. Brittany Shepard joins Yang Speaks. What's up, Brittany? Good to see you. Great to see you virtually. Wish it was in person. Wish it was in person. Um, excited to chat you. Let's let's start with you. That's maybe a weird question, but how'd you get into journalism? Like, I feel like I knew like one friend in college and high school that really wanted to be a journalist. And I feel like you probably grew up in a world where lots of people around you want to be journalists, but maybe I'm wrong. So tell me about you. It's funny that you say that because I definitely did not want to be a journalist surrounded by people who definitely really did. So wind it all the way back. I'm from Long Island, New York. Uh, I wanted to desperately leave New York. No offense to my parents. They're first generation immigrants. I just love them, but it was time to fly the nest. I was applying to colleges and I just didn't, I didn't exactly want to know, know what I wanted to do because who does when you're 18, who does when you're 21? <laughs> 
But regardless, I was like, okay, what can I maybe make money in that's communication based? I don't want to do math. I'm like, uh, mass communication, journalism, maybe that'll work. I mean, I'd seen like good night and good luck and generally knew how um, basic newspapers were formed. So I applied to a bunch of schools, got into GW here in DC and I went kind of sight unseen, assuming that I would kind of figure out what I wanted to do along the way. Were you one of those kids that knew, it sounds like maybe you're a wishy-washy, but like when you graduated high school, you had a direction? I kind of feel like I, I knew how I wanted to make people feel. I either wanted to entertain or reach or, or change the way people live their everyday life. And I was very open to the ways and the mechanisms in which I could do that. So whether that was entertainment or, or news or something in between, I, I think I realized early that the industries that existed then would not exist in five years. I didn't realize how dramatic it would be and how many layoffs it, it would cause in its wake. But I just knew that I had to have some kind of North Star or else I would get lost. And the funny thing about college is you can still be unemployed after. And that's what I was when I graduated. I was interning at National Geographic at the time, working on scripts. I thought that's where I was going to go. I was going to be a script supervisor. I'm like, work in Hollywood or New York and kind of touch the industry in that way. That didn't work. That kind of, <laughs> that industry basically folded. Discovery left DC. Nat Geo got bought by Fox. It, it was lots of tumultuousness. And then I, I couldn't stay in DC. So I went back home and was a classic bum for a year out of college. I think I applied to 150 jobs in journalism and in that television production company space. And I think I, I got denied almost all of them. I had a generally good GPA. I was involved in every club in the world and I'm half black. I'm like nothing was sticking. Um, <laughs> and I was like, damn, I'm like no card is coming out for me this time. And I, I saw that there was a fellowship for this rinky-dink at the time little startup in DC called the Independent Journal Review. I knew nothing about the company at the time, but they were hiring someone just to kind of write news copy or entertainment copy. I was like, I could do that in my sleep. I applied, I got the job, and two weeks later I moved down to DC. So that's kind of how I got my original foothold in journalism, but it took me a long way to get there. First of all, I know the feeling like college I applied, like I was like, it's gonna be a numbers game. Applied a hundred places, I'm gonna get eight interviews and one offer, like whatever it was. Um, and there were there was a large period of time where the, 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 there was no there was no funnel effect. It was just a hundred interviews or hundred applications and zero anything. Um, my question is, my parents said to me when I was growing up, they said, Zach, it's not about what you know. Sadly, it's about who you know. And good luck, because your mom and I know nobody. Um, did <laughs> was that? Uh, was that part of the journey too? Like seeing friends that were like less qualified with a connection somewhere start to get jobs places? Oh, absolutely. I, my parents said the exact same thing to me, but in a British accent. That's literally the only difference. Yeah, they didn't go to college. They knew no one in the industry, outside of the industry. They were living a happy life on Long Island. Yeah, when I went to GW, there were tons of connected people, very, very wealthy people from other countries who just had footholds. They were generational journalists, like grandsons. So I didn't even realize that was a thing. I think it was ignorant of me to not realize that legacy wasn't just about college admission. It was also in getting a foothold in your career. Oh, it was totally frustrating because I thought I had everything. I was the full package on paper and I was getting kicked around on it from porch to porch to porch. And I, I, I realized that there was no space for me in the entry level in legacy news. So traditional newspaper network, unless I wanted to, I don't know if we can curse, but eat dirt for a while, make no money and feel like I'm being lapped, which is something that I deal with. 
I feel like I deal with emotionally now, even though I'm, I feel like I'm in a good place. So I felt like I had nowhere to turn to except for startups. And I'm actually, I'm so glad I did because that was able to skyrocket me to a place where I think I'm 26 now, but at the time I was 21, 22. And because the White House correspondent and the company I'd work, working at had to get hired out or left or something, I had gone to lunch with my boss at the time, who was, it was definitely a tech company that was just producing content. Let me be clear, right? And my boss was definitely Silicon Valley minded, which that's a whole other conversation. But he asked me what I wanted to do. I think I said I wanted to be maybe a tech reporter one day or space because I used to work at Nat Geo. And I had gotten back to my desk and I basically got the offer to be the White House correspondent, sight unseen at 21, 22. And then two weeks later, that was my first political news job with no bylines, no like job experience. And I, that would not happen. That would not happen in the Washington Post, right? What was the name of the startup? Independent Journal Review. Okay. I don't, I don't know if it actually exists anymore, or at least in the form it used to. Well, that's the thing about startups, right? You get a bunch of VC money and it either works. And for the most part, it doesn't. But it was able, it launched a lot of people's careers. You've got a great title and probably a great job. And I was a little shithead kid, you know what I mean? I was 22 with White House correspondents in the briefing room who had been there for decades and decades and decades and decades. And that was the best thing that I could ever do is trial by fire during the Trump administration. At no other White House do I think I would have been given the leash that I was given and the ability to just talk to anyone in the room. Because a lot of other journalists were either fed up or they had emotional, they had, they had a point of view, they had something to prove or something to say at, during that time for I think very justifiable reasons. So they had no problem shooting straight from the hip and telling me how it was. And they also didn't feel threatened by me. Like I wasn't competition so that I could learn very earnestly. And then I tried to do my best, you know, climb the ladder as fast as I could. And that's how I landed in political journalism. It's kind of a weird windy story, but now I, I've ping ponged around, but eventually I'm stuck here in DC, at least for a little while now, yeah. I, I knew you were young. I realized you're that young. I'm just, I mean, jaw-dropping more. Uh, Sabrina, um, I'm, I'm so curious about this, and you kind of touched on it, but I want to dive in a little more. It's like, who's going into journalism, right? Like what, because it is, Andrew talks about it a lot. It's a, it's in some ways a dying industry, in some ways a growing industry, depending on where you're looking at um, in terms of how we're getting news. We can talk about it a lot, but it's, it's definitely changing. And the pay is also getting more bifurcated depending on your entry level and that sort of thing. And you said at first, like I'm coming in with the same title as people have been there for 30 years. Um, now, luckily for you as a startup, so it was, it was less intimidating, but I'm sure some competitors had really young people in some of these roles as well. Um, so, so who gets into this and, and maybe even why? Yeah, there are a lot of different Sims variations of journalists. And that's kind of how I see, like if you're in video game starting character, lots of different kinds of people who could be a journalist. A company similar to, similar to ours at the time was Axios, and they had lots of younger people who I actually went to college with who are still killing the game, who I love very deeply. And I think folks who were going into the startup space were people who kind of wanted to reinvent the wheel. I think kind of the OG, Jonah Peretti, BuzzFeed-minded people who saw that there's something that wasn't clicking in the industry, either in how they were consuming news or they, they were disenfranchised by it, disenchanted by it, and they wanted to change. So kind of like creative-minded folks where they cared about writing and about news copy, but they wanted to make a, you know, move fast and break things. Isn't that what they say in Silicon Valley, right? It was like, that was the centralizing motivation. I think that I might fall under that bucket a little bit. Then there's the folks who 
when they were nine and 10 years old, had been reading the Wall Street Journal because that's all they know when they're from Connecticut. No offense to Connecticut, right? I'm from Connecticut and you should give it all of the shit it deserves. As a Long Islander, <laughs> I'll say it. Uh, where it's generational, either their family works in business or their family is in the industry because there are many people who their grandfather, their grandmother worked in publishing and then, it, and then it trickles down, right? So there were those people who are like hardened by the AP style book and they work at wires and they work at papers and they're wonderful journalists, but their demeanor and their approach is very different. They believe in mass objectivity. Again, this is a big push-pull from the industry itself, even with, within my age group. And I think it translates as you go up and up and up to the vets. Um, and then you have people who are just rich. And that can cross through everything, you know? And I came from a comfortable upbringing. I'm very self-aware of that. It's very difficult to be working class and be an entry-level journalist, at least in Washington, D.C., or in a kind of national journalist role. Because if you squeeze in and look at the papers, like your little neighborhood paper, they probably pay their writers minimum wage. If you are a college student with loans, you can barely afford your own health care. Maybe your family can barely afford their own health care. You don't have time to piddle making like little, you know, articles for 15 bucks. I mean, it's a huge issue. So then, then we have a pipeline problem where it's only folks from Ivy League colleges and GW, right, who are wealthy. So you end up getting predominantly, I think, classist or reporters who have no ability to sympathize or empathize with any other class structure and predominantly white. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. And I think that it's a problem in newsrooms. But to answer your question, I think that's the general archetype of people who want to go in. And I think sprinkled among them are like bleeding heart people, right? Who like want to save the world and they want to bring truth to power. Ideally, a newsroom has all of them. But I think those are the kind of folks who who at least start. Right. So this is this is the crux of it. I'm so I'm so so fascinated by this, and I feel like you've seen enough of all of the world to give a fun perspective on it. Because I'm excited to talk to you. Um, let's talk about journalism today, and I want to. I'd be curious about pros and cons, and I think it's really easy. I am guilty of this, and don't feel bad about it. Like of, of shitting on the media all the time, um, and because there's tons of criticism, and I, I'd like to bucket those out too, but. I think the media does some things really well today. Um, I do think there are some either positive trends or, um, so I wanted to give credence to like the good stuff too. So let's talk about journals today. If I had to do a pro con list, um, what would you say, what is what are the good part? What are the pros of where journalism's going today? I have thoughts too, but I feel like you should start. I think from a selfishly from a newsroom perspective, I think we're the most diverse we've ever been. We have a long way to go. But because of that, we're able to cover stories with nuance, whether whether it's race or gender or any kind of intersectional cut class very well. Look what's happening right now with the Chauvin trial during the Floyd protests over the summer, how that intersected into the election I at least saw more folks on television, more folks in print bylines who were unafraid to be themselves. I, I always give journalists, journalists a shout out. He's my friend, Wes Lowry, formerly of the Washington Post, now of CBS 60 Minutes. He's only a few years older than me, has a Pulitzer, black, and he kind of very famously left the Post being very, very outspoken on Twitter about the racial inequities within that newsroom and with, within news and that empowered a lot of us to do similar things online and being able to, and this is maybe like a 1A, use all of that on social media 
to take away some of the opacity between our sources, our readers, our process, and us as personalities. That is, I think, tantamount to growing media trust. And I think something that we do very well now. Of course, there's tons of space to grow, but I don't think you talked to journalists 10 years ago about now who would ever think that we'd have the leash to be able to say the things we do. That's a good one. I, I, the one, one of the things I said doing real is I, I said transparency in a weird way. I think there's things that are not transparent, but I think reports of what's going on in the New York Times newsroom or the Washington Post newsroom or how people are writing stories or like Twitter in a weird way can be really raw and really personal because it's it's the personality, the tweeter and the tweet, right? There's shit like theory, besides our politicians, I get people to review their tweets. It's usually the human. Um, and I think that's cool. You get to know the reporters. Um, so that is, to me, at least in the long run, a good thing, right? Because it's transparent. There's no like backroom um, editorial process as much as there used to be. I'm sure there are, and that's the thing. Um, the other one I had was that it's the 24 the seven aspect. I think it drives people nuts, but that is theoretically a good thing where you're always there. But the biggest one is like, it's never been easier to report. Like anyone, which may be bad for some bigger behemoths, but anyone can hop on a camera and live stream and be a reporter. I don't know what your thoughts on that, but that feels like generically, generally positive. I have a lot of mixed thoughts about it. I call it the Ratatouille problem that anyone can be a chef thing because, all right, I believe in the democratization of, of the media process of becoming a journalist. I think the barrier to entry should be way low, but with that power becomes lots of responsibility. And mm -hmm. if you do not have the training or at least people around you, you can either misuse it on purpose or by accident, which we've seen a lot of in the last four to eight years, people, and this is not citizen journalism, right? This is not folks during an insurrection or an uprising, going to Twitter and recording and getting information out there that helps us tell the story. That is valuable. I mean, that changes the politics and democracies of certain countries. I wanna like flag that as separate, but I think people, Joe and Jill on the street who then start their own news blog, which again, can have lots of important news value, but they can use that <laughs> without the proper training or resources or fact-checking knowledge and spread disinformation. I hate this term fake news, but it's incorrect information in which it proliferates because it's so easy to go viral with the right headline, with the right packaging. Right. They could stumble on it by accident. Uh, and then now there's a mess on our hands of how do we untangle this? Um, mm -hmm. There was this column in the Washington Post last week and there was this little fact I want to cite that since the 1970s, uh, trust in the news has fallen 70%, 70 to 40. That's huge. Social media making it more democratized has impacted it by a little bit. When we talk about the cons, that's where my biggest con is, I think. I love that you said that because some of these pros and cons, it's like they're all, most of them are double-edged swords, right? Like 24 hour news, exciting. You can always get anything. Same time, like, do we ever take a break? No, drive anybody nuts. Um, YouTube's algorithm, Facebook's algorithm, as of now, doesn't really care if you're the Washington Post versus XYZ's QAnon weekly podcast. If people are clicking on it, if people are interested and excited about it, or just like find the, you know, if it's just clickbait, it's still going to get um, a lot of views and interest and excitement. And that is the big challenge.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. In the past, if you wrote a column, you wrote a front page headline, tons of research, you put it out, you write it, it's put on paper, and the paper boy, which I was one, they just delivered it. They didn't comment on it. And now you have college educated editors and reporters writing articles, but the distribution, the paper boys, paper boys and girls, I'm gonna call it, um, are now college educated social media experts and engineers that took the same history classes and philosophy classes at elite universities. And so they have a say. And so when they don't like it, they're either gonna complain about it or put up a fight or that sort of thing, which to me flips the editorial process on its head. Cause not only have you like researched something, decided to put it out, you don't have to get it through like a defense wall just to um, not have mutiny in your own company. Um, Thoughts on that? Like, have you seen it at Yahoo? Have you seen it elsewhere? Are we allowed to talk about that? <laughs> I think Yahoo is different because it, we are a company that's not just a company providing news. We are a search engine that also has an entertainment mm. vertical. People use the Yahoo Sports for fantasy betting and Yahoo Finance for stock. So we are just a portion of a larger tech company with a different kind of vision. I'll never forget one of the first like real, like traffic bumps for us in this campaign was a piece on Cashly that CNBC did, but it got repurposed on MSN, I believe, which is a website I, I think Yahoo owns or did at the time, 2018. MSN stuff is now on our homepage. Yeah, you haven't been on MSN yeah. in a very long time. And that's the AOL older demographic and they loved it and it was great. So thank you Yahoo for that. I'll pass it along to the chef. Um, <laughs> but I, it's interesting that you talk about the paperboy problem because it's not just, um, the folks uh, programming the social media apparatuses in which we're tweeting out these stories is actually other journalists too. And if a bunch of powerful journalists don't like your story, you cannot punch up and vice versa. So there's incent there's so many different incentives here. Incentives to network and befriend these like four or five or 10 very popular online journalists because if they tweet your story, you're well-respected. Like if Maggie Haberman tweets must read and links to your story, even if it's a bad story, and I'm sure she wouldn't, like, I don't know her personally, but let, let's just put that A-B test out there. The clamor around it will probably be exceedingly positive, even if the story is just a neutral story, versus 
if she says it's a bad story, then the pylon can be larger. I think it's something that we think about in other communities too, right? It's always about having, knowing where you fit ethically in, in, in the ladder. And yeah, it worries me because then people end up chasing clout for lack of a better term than pursuing the truth. But on the flip side, people are held more accountable now than they ever were before. So Joe Blow racist can't go on the New York Times and say like, I think whites are the superior race. What do you think as a thought exercise? <laughs> and realize that his world words also have equal real life implications. That's the key right there. That is the key. And it's, like frust it's frustrating and amazing to me. Because one of the things I said was pro is like, you can't get anything past anybody today, right? There are so many, uh, frankly, like so many critics um, or the other side of the story to get by all the time, which I think is awesome. Like, that's great, right? However, there is, I think there is value in dissenting opinions. And I, I, this is my opinion, but I also think it's borne out in the facts of how many people supported Donald Trump, where you have news outlets that typically skew left, that the press normally skews left historically, are not covering why millions, 78 million people are voting for Donald Trump in a responsible way with a point where those people are, uh, those people, the, the people voting for him many times are just like, well, I'm just not gonna read this anymore because they're not even bothering to understand why I would find this person appealing. Um, now, don't get me wrong, that's not a, that's not a, like supporting of Donald Trump's policies or anything like that, but it's, there is, I think some of our papers used to be like, hey, here's one side, here's the other side. We put it out there, we agree to disagree. And your point is also, well, some of those alternative sides are, fucked up or they're racist or they're dark and we don't want to do that and where is the line i think that's such an interesting point and i'm glad you brought up the people not covering the 73 million people who voted for trump with compassion because this was the other con something i wanted to bring up if we didn't get to it which is the role of ethics in journalism because i would say 10 15 50 years ago folks didn't care there was no ethics. It was, here's the wire, here's the who, what, when, where, why, deal with it. There was no conclusion drawn. It was not, this is bad, this is good. There's a party happening at the Landmark Theater this week, or <laughs> the mayor did this and passed why bill. But because of the advent of social media, there becomes a, what is our ethic responsibility? And I'm sure that you've talked about this person before, but I've been listening to a hundred million Tristan Harris podcasts. So Tristan is a Yang Speaks guest. Yeah, great guy. Someone I find endlessly fascinating who I want to replicate into every single newsroom. For folks who don't know, he was an design, ethical design ethicist at Google, very famously left because he, he couldn't find a way to justify what these big tech companies were doing because they weren't operating in a way that was um, ethical to the human population. Like people were killing themselves on social media. You, any, any kind of big demonization social media that existed was true. And I believe that the press also plays a role because we're, we're not just publishing things with impunity anymore. And I believe there's a big sector of journalism who will disagree with me, who says, we are the fourth estate and we exist to tell stories of people who are a voice to the voiceless or the facts of the matter. And then we step back and we let the world fight it out. Mm -hmm. I disagree. Because the way in which we frame information, both in headline, in body, our point of view isn't everything we write, unless you work for a newswire, and that's just physically impossible with the amount of inches you have, influences how people 
process the news. And there was a, he was in another podcast talking about the information gap. And it's not that you and I get the same story and we have two different opinions. It's that you see one version of the story and I see com something completely different because social networks have tinkered their algorithms so that you and I see completely separate versions of the same narrative. So it's more and more division because we're just getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into a version of the truth that confirms whatever we think because that's how social media makes money. We as journalists who are digital native, and I would say I'm digital native, I've, I've only been born knowing computers and phones and typewriters and Palm Pilots and all of those things. We know where our stories are landing and how we are landing. This is not some kind of hidden theory. And these folks talking about it now, they didn't like just take it out of a vault and be like, look at all the bad things that we're doing with social media. They're just whistleblowers, right? If we don't think about how our stories land and how we can change them to reach a Trump voter and a Biden voter in a similar way so that that information gap gets smaller and smaller and smaller, I think we are doing a disservice. I'm not saying because of us, folks died on January 6th. But I'm not, not saying that our rhetoric has nothing to do with it. If we do not think about the ethics of journalism or the ethics of how we're even transporting the news on social media, which is how a shit ton of these companies make their money, right? On social media ads and proliferation and homepage views and, and the like. We know if folks are getting angry because angry clicks also drive homepage views and then folks get super angry and, and they're armed with incorrect information, and then they start storming cities. Yeah. They, I mean, you can literally A, B, C, D tests, which for those of you, we've said that term a lot, but it's you can try one headline and try another, basically write five headlines, throw them all out there, and the algorithm will find the ones that pe more people are clicking and keep those and get rid of the ones that don't work. And we used to do that. You know, at the start of my work, we did it all the time on Facebook. Like, it was a way of making money. And folks would get more angry and we would be a, we would be doing that on purpose because that's how we'd get more traffic to get more money. And that's an ethics problem <laughs> that yes. a, one journalist alone cannot conquer, but newsrooms together can. So I'm going to, possibly uh, wade into ten contentious waters here, but I, I'm, I'm so curious on like applying this to a real world example. And the one to me that just happened that I think is so interesting, fascinating, is the, the new Georgia voting law. So, and hear me out. Now, don't get me wrong. Where I'm at the camp is we should be letting everybody vote as much as possible. If we believe in democracy, that should be the baseline, right? So, um, now, but I'm so curious what your thoughts on, on narratives here um, and like finding the objective truth and does an objective truth even exist It's at a certain point. Um, so the left, this law comes out in Georgia, um, which we can talk about detail. Of the, law. the left is literally screaming to hell of high water, like Joe Biden himself is saying, this is Jim Crow era uh, suppression of black voters. Um, you've got <clears throat> the state of Georgia boycotting the, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. You've got, I think, today, which is April 20th, happy 420 Yang Gang. Uh, Home Depot is potentially being boycotted. You got Coca-Cola, these big based in Atlanta. These co corporations are waiting in, and the left is like, this is toxic. This is the worst thing in the world. 
And the right is saying, um, you're ridiculous. We've made a ton of concessions on both ends. Now, I've read the law and I agree they are stifling some access, which is dark and screwed up. Um, and in a good area, in some areas, a lot of access. Um, but I do think the right did make concessions on this law. Like, I think they never had, um, like, they've expanded early voting in rural communities. There were no laws on the books, so they had early voting for six months, which is a long time. I hate long-term elections. So they cut that to three, which sound like cutting in half sounds terrible, but having a three-month early voting period is a long, in New York City, it's three, six, three to four weeks. So that's a long time. I think the the only time they're requiring IDs is if you're voting absentee. And even so, you can get around it with every, like literally, not everything, but you don't even need a social security number to get one. Now it's a pain in the ass, it's more barriers. So that's where the left's saying. But my point was, it felt like a, a, a further left narrative than maybe was um, possibly the truth. Not that the law wasn't dark, not that these companies shouldn't have been done, but like it felt like we just went bang, polarized, here we are. As am I, is I, am I missing something? Is this a narrative problem? Is it a, nope, this is actually fucked up, Zach, shut the hell up. Like, t- like what is, um, and, and I feel like it's a good example, especially when it's racially charged, of how the left and right process the facts. You know, I don't know if it's my place to opine on the actual legislation, right? But I think it's important here to point out that news doesn't exist in a vacuum. Right. It isn't like one thing happens in one part of the timeline and this happens in that part of the timeline. People's attitudes and angers evolve and stack. I think a lot of where this narrative comes in is because folks were so angry about um, the big lie, essentially Trump coming out and saying that uh, all these votes were stolen. And your listeners, (laughs) I think, know the story by now. So there is mass anger among Democrats that this process is being disputed um, because they believe actual people are disenfranchised by um, gerrymandering their states. Oh, and the people who suffer whenever they make voting harder, the people who the people who get left off whenever they make voting harder are people of color is by the numbers. Um, And so there that is why this point matters and why or for me, I line on the left, but I don't love the divisiveness that comes from this, even if it's accurate, um, it just doesn't see, I, I don't know. I, I'm just more curious on like how the media fuels this or if they don't, it's just us, just us being idiots. I think everyone's a part of it. The reason I talked about um, the big lie is because I, I think the Jim Crow language, I'm sure Obama thinks that separately, but it's also a product of anger mounting over a long period of time. And that's context and that's where we come in. Because if you see a headline that says um, Biden says Georgia ID law is or Georgia ID law is new Jim Crow, there's some context missing there. But it's also important to realize that television, radio, print, and digital all serve very different audiences and very different gods, right? Television God is, I have three minutes. We have a Zales commercial in the middle. We want to have really interesting panels. And if they're not journalist panels, they're reactionary panels. And do you know what goes viral on Twitter? It's not peaceful conversations uh, that are full of nuance. At least not on my feed, Zach. Like journalists, are, they're still businesses. So that's what fuels them. And so that's where that comes in. Folks who watch a lot of TV 
are going to see that. And if they disagree, get super pissed off, be like, I can't believe they're exaggerating this narrative. And they might be. But that's where that reaction comes from. Folks who probably diversify their news appetite probably are reading more about the nuance. But the caveat to that is that people have jobs to do and things to work and people don't read, people don't listen to the news, people don't read the news so that this very simple narrative gets amplified and amplified and amplified and people get angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier where <laughs> just fueling yourself with information can probably make it a lot more civil of a conversation. But I, I think without opining too much about politics and the state of where we are in the world, we don't make it easy for nuanced convert. We being the media do not make it easy for mm -hmm. nuanced conversations to happen on social media or otherwise, um, because our new ad incentives are to make things as splashy and as controversial as possible because our industry is dying and we also need jobs. So it's like, how do you untangle that headphone cord? I, I don't think that I figured it out yet. And I, and I guess my broader point is like, a lot of these issues are really important conversations we have to have as opposed to black or white opinions that people right now are having. Like, well, if only we're gonna ever, if we disagree with the Georgia law, which I do, we need to talk about it like in a, in a way that we can like prevent other states from doing it and ideally change it, right? And I think both our own world and how the media plays in it kind of can prevent that or um, or excite that on either side. Let me ask you this. Um, so we had uh, Tim Alberta on his podcast recently from Politico or now um, at the Atlantic and, um, and Carly Riley, our finance director was on and she said something like, I always wanted a, uh, like a grade A beef certification on journalists or articles. And the other idea that I was thinking of was like, and you said maybe a journalist shouldn't have to go get a degree, but I was always curious, like could, the way you go to med school or law school or hell, being a, a hairdresser or stylist school, like, is there something where all journalists can be like, well, like, this is the bar for um, our quality. This is an interesting conversation that I used to have in college all the time. Um, and I think my gut reaction is I don't want to carry journalist papers because it's easy for me to get it because I went to a very good accredited four-year um, university. But there are folks who didn't finish college who are in newsrooms now who have stacks of Pulitzers. Like where, and I don't have a Pulitzer. So do I not carry the paper? It, my question for all of these kinds of certifications is who sets the bar? <laughs> for cosmetology school, there is a set of things you need to know. Are you gonna kill someone with this bleach? Do you know how to handle scissors? <laughs> there are very basic tenets of being a hairdresser that is regulated on a state level. There's no state or federal regulation for journalism because that couldn't exist because then it's like someone has the power to regulate free speech. In the way that we think of certification for, for meat, there's no journalist FDA because if it is, who would we appoint and why? And those are human beings with agendas who can be influenced by the news. It's just a part of our society that doesn't exist in that in that way. Um, I think it's it's difficult. Like you were just saying before that it's, these conversations aren't happening, but look at the rise of podcasts now. Like 
Every six white guys you know have a podcast. This white guy does, yeah. Exactly. Well, and you know, and and many other people like the rise of NPR is, I feel like, having a moment right now. And um, you know, we have Michael Barbaro on the Daily. People like on Tinder and Bumble are talking about how much they love podcasts. Like, I think that radio and long form format is having a moment because there is a hunger to have complicated conversation so that's just like i don't think all hope is lost and i think unfortunately to this question you have to be the own certifier of your own news unfortunately that is the responsibility of a human being it falls on them um and that's difficult because there are people with different capacities to process the truth that's just the way the cookie crumbles and that's difficult i think for me to metabolize See, we talk about lack of institutional trust. Andrew and I talk about that all the time. And media is the one that hits society, I think, the hardest or one of the hardest. Um, medicine would be the hardest, I think, which we're learning in COVID. Um, but people now trust people. They don't trust institutions, right? People trust Brittany Shepard more than they trust Yahoo. No offense, Yahoo. It doesn't matter where you work. They trust you more. Um, the, so let me ask you this. Let's start. I want, I want to talk about where this is going. My first question for you is... Um, if you're comfortable sharing, like what are your incentives now at Yahoo or maybe generally, like what are you, what are they, what is your, the boss or the powers that be tell you that your priorities should be? And then, so one is priorities and two, if you do well on certain things, do you get paid more? Um, you know, and financially incentivize you certain things too. They answered your first question, what's my incentive? Getting paid. <laughs> I just wanted to say that because I think a lot of journalists are a little gun shy to be like, you know, th- there's lots of bleeding hearts out there. We all want to make money, and I, I just think it's important to be transparent. Um, depends where you work about the article pay scale thing. Personally, I have a salary. I have an expectation to publish regularly. What that means depends a lot on what's happening in the news cycle. Um, it depends a lot about what's happening per day. That crosses differently per institution. If you work at a place, well, Formerly, folks like Business Insider and places that was like really heavy content-wise, those folks probably published four or six times a day. At IGR, there were times where I had to publish six articles a day or else because that was their money-making model was flood the zone. And it worked well until it didn't, right? Um, So at least for me, when I'm thinking of, okay, I wake up, I read the news, I reflect on the news from last night, where do I go from here? Um, I try to, you know, maybe bang out three stories a week, but I also have other responsibilities like going into the White House, pooling, yada, 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 making calls, um, trying to break news, keeping up my social media. But I, I think that my personal incentive, I think my bosses would be happy if I got a story that was interesting, scoopy. So, you know, with information that hasn't been out before and attracts a lot of homepage traffic. That last bit, I think, is the most important for the C-suite people. Where I work, because I work at a tech company, and they're they're all about bottom lines. I get it. That's how they make money. That's why they run a very successful cell phone company, right? Verizon owns Yahoo. And it, it is very difficult sometimes to marry all of those interests because some things that I'm very much interested in, like Space Force policy or talking about UBI or writing features, is not like splashy next to a Miley Cyrus side boob compilation on the homepage. Just being real. So how do I balance the needs of my bosses with mine? I don't know. I'm still figuring that out. And I think a lot of us are too. Some people just go, eh, I'll, I'll deal with my passions privately and just 
What's the day turn story? Biden signed this today. This happened on the Hill today. Go, 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 go. And that works for some people. That doesn't sustain me. And I think would cause burnout, which we're seeing a lot of in the industry. Um, but at the end of the day, if our C-suite people up in New York who work for Verizon say, we don't want Yahoo News anymore because they're not providing enough content to the homepage, we're not bringing in enough percentage of money to our bottom line, we're gone. And that's why I think you see a lot of less nuanced journalism or clickbait or whatever you want to call it, because there is a fury because we don't have monetization like paywall, right? And that's where that's where the other side of this coin is. Then you set up a paywall and you can kind of like the Atlantic and you can do whatever you want and you could be Tim Alberta and you can write beautiful, beautiful features because people are paying in a premium and you're owned by a billionaire. Yep. And this is the biggest challenge because you have certain companies like Business Insider, Buzzfeed, or the, you know, it depends where you are. I guess Business Insider is changing a bit with their paywall, but um, certain companies are like, we are clickbait. We're here to make money. We don't care. Get the clicks. And there's a certain amount of respect I have in that they're honest with themselves. And they're, you know, it's like, I do, I do. Then you have others that are like, we're behind the paywall. We're going to write great content, but you have to pay for it. You have to pay premium. And that, that price is probably going to go up over time. Uh, deal with it. And then you have others that I think are stuck in tr like in a really difficult challenge. And it's probably where it sounds like you guys are at Yahoo, where it's, I have great journalists like yourself. They can write great content. They also need to write great content that a lot of people care about. And as much as I love reading about um, what the New York Times they had an article on the difference between like flourishing and depression is something called languishing, and what we're like, which is a fascinating article today. Um, I also love reading about whatever scandal of the day happened or whatever car crash news they get me on. It's the same way everybody does. Um, what's happening with, you know, Matt Gates in Florida and whatever the heck he's doing. Um, so to me, that's the eternal challenge. Um, thoughts on where that, that goes. And, my, my, and I'd love your thoughts on Substack too, where a lot of Sadly, only your your more established journalists are really able to do this and, and make money. But they're they're just like, look, I don't want to fight these battles anymore. I'm just going to write whatever I want. And there's a platform Substack where people can, or Patreon, whatever they use, where people can pay me whatever they feel is valuable. And they have a big enough platform that it doesn't matter. They make a ton of money. Um, thoughts on the end game here um, over the next five ten years. <laughs> Well, I think you didn't hit the nail on the head here. I think folks are just getting fed the fuck up. And they're going to leave institutional journalism to go on their own because they can. Um, journalism, for better or for worse, has become a personality game. You might know who Chris Eliza is. You might not know one thing he published, but you know that you either really like him or you really don't like him. These people have legions of fans. Like as much as, you know, as much as Andrew does, as much as Biden does, as much as maybe not AOC, I think she's the perfect example of influencer politician, right? And there's mm -hmm. also influencer journalists on the rise and it makes people buku bucks. They leave their newsroom, they either go to Substack or Patreon or they become a Twitch streamer or they do multi-platform on YouTube and become a partner or they become a TikTok news influencer. And then they go to South by Southwest and get speaking fees and they get signed by an agency and they make triple the amount of money they could doing traditional news because 
they can't. They get all these projects, they go to Politicon, and they feel both personally um, sustained and monetarily sustained. There, I think, is diminishing returns because not everyone can be a celebrity. We're seeing that now. It doesn't, it flames out very quickly. And as far as you go up, other journalists would love to punch you down and see you fall and have your career come out, go up in flames, right? So this makes for a very volatile future of the industry. I think that you'll always have the gray lady. Like you're always going to have the New York Times because nostalgia sells so much money and there will be like the entire Upper West Side will go and start rioting if the New York Times folds, right? Um, there's institutional buy-in for the New Yorker as well. Let's say the LA Times, but for not like folks like the Miami Herald, like that's gone. <laughs> um, so you'll always have that. But I, I think more and more you'll, you'll see individually brands, journalists as brands, they have their own books and podcasts and whatever. I don't think that's inherently bad, but I think it intrinsically changes the way people contact news. And that worries me because people are barely reading the news now. And if they don't like that personality, if, they, if people who like me now stop liking me, then they're not gonna engage with the news anymore. And then we're gonna have a completely uninformed public. The, the idea of people reading less news or engaging with less news than now makes me very sad. Uh, so that's, yeah. but that, that's where I can see it going, um, in, in a negative way, but in an upswing, yeah. I want to, I want to have a positive interpretation okay. too. Gen Z, I know I talk about them all the time, but that's like people born basically after 1998, 1999 are so impactfully informed. Like me and other millennials are watching Brid Bridgerton and tuning out our lives, like on antidepressants. Right. And, but they, <laughs> I mean, look at the, the Parkland kids. They, they've experienced trauma in similar ways to folks in my generation, but have mobilized that trauma into a worldwide movement. Greta Thunberg, you know, it, this crosses across um, nations, is that Gen Z folks are so um, energized and mobilized to consume news and change politics that I don't think the die-off will happen. They'll just change the, the mediums in which people are engaging. And I, I think the less we pander to them and the less we condescend to them and the more we empower them to either become content creators or politicians or whatever, right? Um, the more success we'll have with all of these industries staying buoyant. That's so interesting where, so we said earlier, like people trust people, they're stopping to trust institutions, but the Gen Z, especially as they get older, I'm curious, I think there, there are institutions they do trust. Um, they're just different. I think they trust TikTok in a weird way. They are living in a completely different world than even you and I are living in. Um, but compared to our parents and then grandparents, um, it might as well be Mars. It's probably actually Pluto. Um, and I agree with you They're, like the rise of personalities and fall of personalities will probably be the future of journalism. Andrew talks about, um, he's like, the way I see it going right now is you have, we completely don't do anything, which is a path we're on. And it's just this wild west of disinformation and you end up having really terrible people win political races because even if the correct information's out there, either people aren't getting it or don't want to get it, right? Um, which I, I think has happened. Um, and the other, easy, the other model, or you do, he says, or you do what they've done in, um, in England or the UK or like with the BBC, or they have some sort of state-sponsored network that is overseen by a bipartisan board and that sort of thing, which to me sounds great, but also sounds dangerous in that if you have a 
true like authoritarian person getting charged, that's the first thing they probably take over. Thoughts on, but Andrew's point is you can't do nothing. Like doing nothing is what's happening right now and that's a disaster. So uh, from, I know you're passionate about policy as a type uh, thoughts on what you actually could do as a government, federal, state, or local. Um, my, my other thought is fund philanthropically, 501c3 style, but maybe funded from the federal government, um, local journalism all over the country. That was my answer. Give local journalists more money. The, the best reporting I see come out of Minneapolis is from the Star Tribune, right? <laughs> These people know, local journalists know their communities and communities trust like people from down the street. They're not gonna trust people from Washington DC, nor should they frankly. Uh, and that is a way, it's never ever going to be top down for news. It never was. <laughs> Walter Cronkite didn't bust the door open in DC and was, here I am, here's a news institution. No, folks hustle from the lowest parts of their lowest, the most local parts of the community up. And some folks never want to leave because that's their passion. I, I truly think if when we try to do that at the WHC, at the White House Correspondents Association, there is a small amount of, I would say, sorry, a large amount of money that doesn't go to the dinner that goes to scholarships of folks in local communities for them to either come to DC or, you know, pump up their own careers wherever they are. That is the most important thing and the way that you can, you can teach someone to fish without <laughs> giving them the fishing rod and it's owned by the United States government. <laughs> you can take it away at any time and then you're going to starve again, uh, you know? Uh, but you have to convince a lot of people that it's worth giving money to local journalism because some folks are so disenchanted with news that they just don't read and they don't care. That's the challenge. But I think that there's a very clear solution. I think it is too. It is expensive, but you know, it's also expensive. Uh, society's disintegration and the failing of all your systems. And yeah, it's expensive creating algorithms on social media <laughs> that force users to stay on the app longer and longer and longer and longer and longer so that they're less and less informed. Let me ask you this as we as wrap, but he's like, where does someone like you get their news? Someone who's like passionate about news and reading all the time. What Are you allowed to reveal your sources there? Surprisingly, I'll, I'll give you my, my morning routine, like an influencer. I wake up and I look at TikTok for about half an hour and I actually see what's on the minds of the kiddos. Wow, that's gotta be a mind melt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have one brain cell left, um, but it's had so many great clothes now. So I kind of start there. Um, I actually do not, then I do not go to the papers. I go to Twitter um, and I scroll and I see kind of like what articles are popping. That's how I saw the languishing article and um, usually kind of the big scoops of the night. I look at the trending, I go from there. And then, you know, admittedly I use lots of curation apps, right? So I have Apple News which knows me very well. And I'll go and see what's popping there. I love digital first um, outlets like the Daily Beast, folks that, you know what I mean, that are, they're, they're not beholden to certain advertising models. And then I, I read Yahoo, I should probably say that, which is true, I do. We have a small team, small but mighty, so I like to see kind of what, what they're doing. And then um, I, I go from there. I try not to read the newsletters and the fact sheets too much, like the playbooks of the world. I love the people who write them. I know most of them very well, but I worry about getting something I like to call DC brain, where like I begin to care about news stories that like people at Yahoo give zero shits about. Do you follow anyone that you disagree with? 
For a long time, I, I think the answer was no, I didn't. Either journalistic, like there's my personal politics, right? Which like, that's something completely different from my personal accounts. But for professionally, I used to get so angry <laughs> when I would read content and I would want to start fights. You know me. I am definitely a bit of a firecracker. Yeah. And I am like the little, like, you know, the little sister coming in and like beating up the bully because I don't like when people go online and say dumb shit that has bad consequences. In my older age, I realized that's not always the best decision and a good way for me to get capital F fire from wherever I work. And that's the most important thing. Now, in I think in the last year or so, I've been a lot more um, proactive about following people I both personally disagree with and not just following them, reading and listening to their shit, right? Like uh, I, my boyfriend is very big about dissenting opinions, like being able to have these conversations. And that has rubbed off on me a lot recently where I'll listen to podcasts. I'll, I'll say this plainly, me and Joe Rogan probably don't see eye to eye on lots of things, but he has an impact that a lot of people don't. I like to see why and what snaps. And I think Brittany five years ago wouldn't do that or listen to someone like a provocateur of the Ben Shapiro zeitgeist. There's le- I mean, there are left-wing provocateurs and they just don't really pop on my timeline as much. Like I don't really know who those folks are. I'm sure they're in like the, the dregs of YouTube that I try to avoid by watching YouTube um, makeup videos. Um, and you know, he says transphobic things on his podcast and I get really angry because I'm not a transphobe. I don't think that's a radical mm-hmm. thing for a journalist to say. <laughs> Call me old fashioned, right? It's not, but yeah. it's in, when those things pop off, especially in the politics realm, like when a politician goes on there or like a politician is talking about that or he guest writes playbook. Um, I like to see why. And I feel like regardless of it making me a better citizen of the world, I think it makes me a better journalist. And this is a good pin, I think a good way to close to bring up what you said way at the beginning of this podcast is that when reporters talk about, let's say Trump voters, they do it with such little compassion and such assumptions that just don't exist that those folks, 73 million folks are turned off from reading, period. That's on us. And I feel like I get an inch more of compassion or understanding that I can approach those stories, those profiles, those features a lot more equitably because those are just human beings, just like Biden voters are just human beings with points of view and realities in which they struggle. And mm-hmm. listening to the media that they consume is why I used to watch Fox and Friends every morning when I was covering Trump. Um, mm-hmm. And why I try to watch MSNBC more now that Biden is president so that when I approach liberals and approach Democrats, I come with compassion. And this is the key, and, and Andrew and I, and I'm trying to run our campaign this way, is the humanity first piece. And I don't know the answer to that. I think it's really hard because listening to somebody that you really, really disagree with, or they've said things that are really hurtful to you or about people you care about, um, that's hard. That is a, that is a growth thing. Um, But if we don't, I think we're going to end up continuing on the path we're on now, which is we just don't listen to each other and we just have two different Americas or a million different Americas in their own little, I don't listen to anybody bubble. Um, So look, I will say this. I appreciate you 
I'll never forget we were, I think we were in middle of nowhere, Iowa, and you like, um, and we got to know you and your team and, or you got to know our team too. And it was um, just, you're one of the good ones. Um, and I, I thank you for being objective and let's call it this, fighting the good fight. Um, and thank you for coming on and um, letting me, you know, ask dumb questions and say dumb things and have you uh, either put me in my place or, or, or foster a fascinating conversation. So thank you, you're a superstar. Glad you joined, Brittany. Uh, anytime, there are no dumb questions. Thank you for letting me get into more good trouble.